All right, we've got um, uh, continuing our series, and I think I told you that we're going to sort of launch out of Psalm 23 each week. So today we launch out of Psalm 23, verse 1, uh, and we land in John chapter 10. First verse of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And we get all the way down to chapter 10 and verse 11 to find Jesus claiming that title, I am the good shepherd. But it probably doesn't surprise any of you to know that we got a little background we've got to dig into before we get to that verse. And we got to start all the way back in John chapter 9. Now, let me ask you a question that's a trap question. When John 10.10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Who is the thief? We have, I have thought that it was Satan for a long time, but what we're going to see tonight is that's not who Jesus was talking about. And we've got to go all the way back to chapter nine in order to really understand the context. There is no break in the Greek between chapter nine and chapter 10. So a lot of times we're uh, we're given a false sense of uh, of uh, structure by verses and chapter divisions. And uh, in this particular case, there is no break there. And we're, we're going to see that in just a second. Is it our busyness or our not giving God what it's due to him? Possibly. That's part of it. But he's talking about some specific people. Okay. Oh, um, he's talking about the Jewish rabbis. Exactly. So let's look at a couple of clues. The very first line of chapter 10. The New International starts the chapter with very truly. Um, King James probably says verily, verily. What do your translations say? Truly, truly, truly. I assure you, most solid. John 10, 1. I'll tell you the truth. Okay. In Greek, the literal is amen and amen. And, and whenever that phrase is used, it's a little bit like the word therefore. It's a bridge between some content that has been before and some content that follows. So we got to figure out where this uh, story, uh, the, the, the word for it is pericope, where does this story start? We're going to go all the way back to John chapter 9, verse 1, and we find Jesus and the disciples somewhere in Jerusalem, okay? Scripture says, as he went along, so we know that that that's a, a transition piece. We know that a story starts there because he, he just got through talking about being on the temple grounds. Now he said, as they're on their way. So, so a new story is coming. He saw a man 
blind from birth. Okay, so no accident has caused this blindness. Uh, it, it is it is apparently known that he's blind from birth. And so his disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Now, what does that reflect? Generational sin. Generational sin. And it also reflects the the misunderstanding that we still carry today. If you sin, you're going to get punished. If you are doing the right things, you're going to be blessed. That, that, that was the, the thought behind a lot of what the disciples asked Jesus. Because the, the Jewish rabbis taught that if you sin, you're going to get blasted. God's going to do something to you. You think bad thoughts... Your complexion's going to go bad. Your eyesight will go out. Your hair will fall out. Uh, you're you're going to get some disease. Your uh, something will happen to your family if you sin. Something's going to happen to you. Now, the the reverse of that is true as well. If someone sees someone who's suffering, what's their conclusion? What's the book of the Bible that the whole book's about? Just confess what you did you did something nobody suffers like this if you didn't do something awful just confess what it is his kind compassionate loving spouse said just curse God and die and so you've got this 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 uh, I don't want to call it theology but it was it was definitely a thought pattern and quite honestly we kind of have that today if we see somebody who's extremely blessed, we go, God's really blessing them. And we define blessings usually with prosperity or beauty or uh, intellect. God just really blessed that guy with a mind. God just really blessed that, that woman with beauty. God just really blessed that family with, with peace. God really blessed that businessman with prosperity. And unfortunately, we kind of think the other side is true too. I got it not doing so well. Now, that's not to say that sometimes that's not the case. I can tell you line and chapter and verse of times I've messed up and it's caught up with. I did something. I took a shortcut. I listened to my carnal nature and some consequence was immediate. Usually it was a natural consequence. It wasn't a, a necessarily a spiritual con, uh, consequence. I, I was in a hurry because I left home too late, got a speeding ticket. So the, sometimes those are connected. And that's sort of the question that's on the minds of the rabbis, of the, the disciples. Now, let me jump forward for a second. Can you can you put a bookmark there and let me point you all the way to chapter 10, verse 22? It is the only verse in the Bible that mentions this festival. And we've got to do a little history. This is Wednesday night content only. Bring it on. Chapter 10, verse 22. Then he came to the Feast of Dedication. Do any of your Bibles have a different name? Festival. Uh, Reference. Reckons. 
Segregations of the temple. I'm saying the whole the rededication for the, the desecration of the temple. What's the word we use today? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah, I, in my personal Bible reading, I'm, I've just finished Leviticus. Just exciting Leviticus. And near the end of Leviticus, the six major festivals of Jewish antiquity that were given to Moses are listed. Hanukkah is not one. Anybody know what Hanukkah is about? Yeah, the miraculous oil that lasted for eight days in the temple. But the backstory is that 300 or so BC, Alexander the Great ruled the world. 200 or so, his kingdom began to fracture. And a series of conquests uh, fought for control of the Middle East. Okay, this is not new to the Crusades. The, the Greeks under Alexander the Great or the Macedonians gave way to the uh, Seleucids, gave way to the Ptolemies, gave the way to the... And, and it was a series of, uh, of uh, occupying forces that ruled Jerusalem, that ruled Judea. The last of those was a guy named Antiochus Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. Now his daddy sort of said, "Let's just leave the Jews alone. Let them do their thing. Let them have their faith. They're they're not messing with anybody. We'll let them practice." Well, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth was barbaric and a psychopath. And he decided that there had been just too much going on with these uppity Jews. And so he, with a great deal of violence, uh, took over Judea, desecrated the temple, built an altar to Zeus. And one of the early things he did, you use the word desecration, Dick, he, uh, he made sure they sacrificed pigs on the altar. So it was like, and, and so the, the Jewish people who had been forced out into the wilderness, they began to raise up an army. And the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, or the intertestamental period between the Testaments, Old and New Testament, that is the, the time frame of the Jewish wars, particularly about 160 or so BC, the uh, Maccabean revolt. If you if you've ever read a Catholic Bible, the the apocrypha in there has the books of the Maccabees. Those are historically accurate, uh, but didn't make the cut as far as inspired scripture. So the Maccabees led a revolt against the Romans, the occupying forces. And they won. In 165 BC, Judas Maccabeus succeeded in rededicating the temple. And the Feast of Hanukkah, or the Feast of Dedication, is about that. 
Why do I go into all that about one verse? Because the irony here is that the lessons that the rabbis taught at Hanukkah typically talked about the poor leadership in Israel that led to the downfall of the temple at the hands of the Romans. That if there had been better leadership, if there had been priests who weren't greedy, priests who were making deals, priests who were corrupt, and the lessons of Hanukkah frequently talk about what should have happened with the shepherds who were leading Israel. And they would frequently read Ezekiel chapter 34. Listen, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Son of man, this is 800 years before Christ. So this is a smooth 650 ahead of the Maccabean revolt. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord said, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak. You have not healed the sick, bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays. You not searched for the lost. You not strengthened. You you ruled them harshly, so they scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered, has become food for all the wild animals. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm against the shepherds. I will hold them accountable for my flock. That was a frequent reading at Hanukkah. And so the time frame here, Jesus and the disciples are walking around on the Temple Mount. They see a blind guy. They say, okay, who's sin? Who's responsible for his infirmity? Who, who has neglected this sheep? Is it him or is it his parents? Now, read, somebody read chapter 9, verse 3. Somebody read that just for the fun of it. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are people that have said, God is some kind of cruel to make a, a guy blind for life so he can teach a lesson. And, and if you read it at face value, it, it kind of reads that way. One of the scholars that I read, and I, I, and you've heard me talk about this from this school, but I'm, I'm fascinated with the grammar that that we have to understand in order to understand what's saying. Do you see in that verse the words so that? You remember what I called that? The henna clause, the, the so that clause, the connecting clause. 
This scholar says that connecting clause should go with verse 4 and not verse 3. And it should read more like, neither this man nor his parents sin. Hard stop. But so that the work of God might be displayed in his life, we must do the work of him who sent me while it is still day. Oh, makes a lot of difference. That will and instead of describing, instead of buying into that, he, he didn't acknowledge that anybody sinned. He said, neither sinned. But so that God can be glorified, watch what happens next. So he, he made no comment on the sin or lack of sin of this man. He said, what happens next is that God is glorified. Now, it is very true that God is sovereign. That a hurricane happens because God lets a hurricane happen. Sickness happens. Cancer happens because God lets it happen. God is sovereign. Why does he let it happen? We don't know. But maybe we get a glimpse of it here when this guy had been blind all his life. We, he's a grown man. His parents say that in just a minute. Because they didn't want to take responsibility for his healing. He's he's a grown man. So he's been blind all his life. And now in this moment, Jesus says, so that the work of God may be glorified and may be displayed in this life. Well, that's really helpful for me. It's 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 hard because I know that all these people that were praying for. That, that unless uh, something different than usual happens, we're going to have five funerals in the next six months at least. And some of those are going to be relatively young people who died of cancer. Rhonda Kelly is only five years older than I. Are we able to say... Nobody sinned here. You see, he doesn't call it the allowed. Exactly. Exactly. Nothing happens that he doesn't allow. God is sovereign. But he allows things that we might not understand so that his glory can be seen. Now, again, God didn't pick this guy out in some kind of a cosmic lottery. And go, that one's blind. He was blind. We don't know why. We we may try to explain it in today's terms. Maybe there was something genetic. Maybe he didn't have oxygen in the womb. We don't know. We just know that he had been blind from birth. And that Jesus said emphatically to the disciples, sin is not the issue here. He has a condition that's horrible. He is, he, 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 he is ostracized because of it. He's reduced to begging because of it. But now the that, that he's here and we're here, the work of God can be displayed in his life. Now, as a pastor, I don't like that. I want to explain to people why God is doing what God is doing. Sometimes I feel like I owe that to him, right? I'm supposed to know better. It is humbling to know that I, I just don't. And, and we don't. But we know that God is always at work. So that builds on this story. Because you would expect uh, Jesus 
verse uh, 6, after saying this, he spit on the ground, mixed up some mud. He told the guy, go wash in the pool of Siloam. We know where the pool of Siloam is in Jerusalem. We, we don't necessarily think he was right by it, but he was close. And uh, so the man went and washed and came home seeing. So there's a before and the after. And now enter the religious leaders. Spoiler alert. These are the thieves and robbers of chapter 10. So some mother said, what happened? How were your eyes open? Verse 11, this man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. I did. I can see. Where is this man? He said, I don't know. <laughs> then verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man. Why? Part of it. Gotcha. But also, if it was a miracle, the Pharisees had to they had to verify that he could now rejoin uh, society in the places that a leper had to present them. Go show yourselves to the priest, uh, Jesus told the ten lepers. So the Pharisees go and the Sabbath, we, we we get the first clue that it's the Sabbath there in verse 14. And it's an editorial comment. So the uh, Pharisees ask him, also ask him how he had received his sight. So strike one, healing on the Sabbath. But I'm curious, how did this happen? Some of the Pharisees, verse 16, said, this man's not from God. He does not keep the Sabbath. Now, obviously, this is not referring to the man who was blind. This is referring to the man who healed him. And others say, how can a sinner perform such signs? Again, the 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 Jewish, and rightfully so, that, that a, a true miracle was from God. Uh, we, we saw way back in Moses' time that the that the uh, magicians were able to imitate some of the, quote, miracles, but a true miracle. And, th and Jesus is the only one that, that, that has ever been recorded as healing somebody that's blind. So they turned to the blind man and said, what do you have to say? Man said, guess he's a prophet. This guy's a lot smarter than we think he is. We think he's just a dumb blind man. But he's listened a lot. He's heard a lot. They still did not believe that he had been blind. So they acknowledged that he could see. His, the fact that he had sight was not in dispute. Oh, but were you really blind before? You know, it reminds me of some of the healing preachers that we've seen on television where, you know, some guy limps up to the stage and then runs off. We we kind of all suspect that maybe he wasn't quite as lame to begin with. Well, it's the same cynicism. So they sent for the man's parents. They got his, wanted his birth certificate and his blind certificate. And uh, this your son? Looks like him. Was he born blind? We know is he our we know he's our son, the parents answered. 
and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's a grown man. Ask him. Now, the next verse is a little bit of a key. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, in verse 34, we see that that's exactly what happened. What does that mean? Anybody have a note in your Bible as to what put out of the synagogue was about? Excommunicated from worship and fellowship. Yeah, we. we well, it's everything, and, and picture the picture the draconian excommunications of the the Middle Ages, even that if somebody was pronounced, it was like they were banished from the community. When you're put out of the synagogue, you, you can't get a job. You you can't associate with people. Your family has to turn their back on you or they're going to be put out of the synagogue as well. That's what it says about his parents. They were afraid that they were going to be put out of the synagogue. Because the Jewish leaders have said, this guy, Jesus, he's trouble. If you have anything to do with him, we will make your life a living hell. We will. You won't get a job. You won't have friends. You can't buy and sell. You, you're going to have to go way out from the city and do the best you can with what you got to work. Now, we've lost some of the strength of that because we don't really put people out of the church anymore. And if we do, they pretty much just go to another church if they care about church at all. The, the, but we remember that, that, that even today when we talk about the Jewish people, we have trouble separating the civil nation of Israel from the Jewish faith. And so, so this was not just a religious pronouncement. You know, if we, if we get kicked out of whatever it is that we're going to get kicked out of, we go, okay, let's go on about our business. But it was, tra it was, it was a catastrophic thing here. Yeah. Weird questions. No weird questions. Miracles. Faith closer to somebody came us in the They lowered him down where the sky's just way up here. That's nothing that says anything about his faith, his belief, his anything. He didn't always expect it. He heard a lot. When we're about to see the the things that he said about Jesus were incredibly much more. So so, but but we can't ever forget who's the author of every miracle. So so when we go back to when Jesus said, it's not about sin; it's about God showing off. It's about God is about to be God in this man's life. He didn't cause it. You didn't cause it. He, he didn't stop it. God is going to be God here. And you guys just sit back and watch. Now, we fortunately, Bill, it helps us feel better 
that we've got some connect the dot statements because the guy, well, stay tuned. So his parents were afraid. That's why his parents said he's a grown man. Ask him. So they brought him back and they said, give glory to God by telling the truth. We know this man is a sinner, Jesus. And he says, hey, sinner, saint, not so sure about any of that. What I am sure about is that I can see you. <laughs> I was blind before, and now I can see. So then they ask him again, what did he do? He says, told you already, and you didn't listen. What part of mud in my eyes and the pool of Siloam did you not get? He says, what do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples too? Whoa, this guy is not some ignorant peasant. He's got a little bit of an edge to him. So they insulted him and they said, you are this fellow's disciple. Guilty. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Now the man is both bold and sarcastic. He says, you don't know. That's remarkable. Imagine that. I mean, he's dripping with sarcasm. You don't know where he came from, but he healed the blind. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. And he's saying what they said, right? Okay, agreed. God doesn't listen to sinners. It's almost like a geometric proof, right? If then God doesn't listen to sinners, sinners can't heal. This man healed, therefore he's not a sinner. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture me? Welcome home. Hey, you guys did my little good job. How are you still awake? Uh, get behind Bill and get on camera. There you go. The owl will find you. Give us uh, two minutes. Uh, Alan just got off the plane two hours ago, an hour ago, from Liberia. Yeah, very, very successful project. Um, we helped the village clear out uh, three acres of land. Uh, we installed a solar power irrigation system and then taught the villagers how to use that system. Put some management structure in place to make sure it's well administered. And... Um, you know, when you turn that thing on for the first time, they're not real sure why we're doing all this digging and plowing and shoveling. Uh, but when you turn on the water for the first time and you watch the light bulb go in his life. Oh, guys. And the one big guy moment was that we were having some terrible trouble with the pump. There was a, the pump kept losing its prime. So we'd start it up and after a moment or two of running, it would suck a bubble of air into it and cut off. And we'd all stand there and look at it. So frustrating. And eventually we just all went to our knees. It was the only thing we could think to do. We couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't come up with another explanation. Uh, and that led us to check something else. We ended up removing the compound that should have worked. 
The system began working. At that point, we finally got water all over the garden. All this praise and prayer. And with that, it started raining. Which is unusual for two reasons. One, it's the dry season in Africa and there is no rain. And it poured on the garden. And so, you know, everybody's running around playing in the rain. So God's reminding us that all this work that we're doing, he's still in control. And then when we left the farm two or three miles down the road, powder dry. And I'm like, the, the sky had opened on that one spot, and we checked the radar. There was no rain in the forecast. There was not a drop, and there's no rain on the radar. It's like in that one spot, guys, like, just want to oh, show you. So, uh, just a palatable experience. Just want to stick my head in and say hi. Oh, I can barely put one foot in front of the other. And Pastor, I left, I left seven, brought, came back, same seven. So you got scared, you brought a back. I did. Right. It was touch and go whether yeah. you were going to bring him back. But uh, you also uh, had a bit of a miracle in what you were able to uh, get in your checked luggage on the way over. We purchased a plow, took it completely apart, and everybody carried a part of the plow. So oh, each person had like a blade and bearing and a shaft, and we got back together, put it all back together. Oh, my goodness. Um, she said, We'd like to speak to your group, just some cousins and immigration, and bringing in commercial supplies, all like. No, no, these are donated items belonging to a church. So we felt good about the answer. And for whatever reason, they walked us right on past the immigration station with all of our luggage, and uh, we didn't get a stop. So we had two miles of irrigation tank and a plow in our luggage. Oh, my <laughs> we got it in the country. Oh, so we've got photographs and stories for days, but uh, my wife was sitting outside wanting to talk. We certainly I would pay attention to that. Right. So we're talking about miracles, and uh, you would expect, whether they understood it or not, if these men had even a seed of God's spirit in them, you, 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 there, there were no Christians yet, right? There were people who were looking for the Messiah and believed that Jesus might be him, but they were just a hair's difference from these guys who had been studying the Jewish law. And I am sure, because we have the example of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, I am sure that there were godly Pharisees who were absolutely looking for the Messiah. So our, our issue here is not whether they're position was pastor, priest, teacher. The issue is that they were corrupt shepherds. The corruption that Ezekiel talked about in chapter 34, the corruption that they talked about at Hanukkah, where did we go wrong 200 years ago? How did the temple become uh, desecrated? The leaders were corrupt. That's what Ezekiel predicted 800 years before this, 650 years before, or 850 years before any of this happened with 
uh, with the, the uh, Maccabees. So it's the leaders who are bad shepherds. And that prompts us now finally to chapter 10. It feels like a, a political hotel. Too. Absolutely it is. And, and, and it's a lose-lose for the Pharisees. They can't, get, they can't go which way they're going to go here. Well, they they go for what will help them. Yeah. And and it's not hard for us to understand that at all, looking at Washington. Yeah. It's not hard for us to understand what when are you going to do what's good for the country? And and Jesus is basically saying to these people, when are you going to do what's right by the sheep? So a transition moment, he is excommunicated. He's kicked out of the synagogue. Now, I don't know if you remember last week when we talked about a sheep that was cast. He's upside down. So now he got upside down, but he can't be with the flock. He can't do anything on his own. He is a cast sheep, and an upside down sheep cannot survive. The gases invert, and, and it's just the gravity is all wrong. Unless he gets a, a good run and start and can roll back over, or unless somebody physically picks him up and puts him on his feet. You restore my soul. Psalm 23. You put me back on my feet. So this guy is cast out of the synagogue. And what we don't talk about a lot is that Jesus circled back around. Now, for you know the metaphor we're headed for, right? So if this guy is cast out of the synagogue, he is, in fact, a lost sheep. What does Luke 15 tell us about the zeal of the shepherd? I'm going to go back for it. So in verse 35, Jesus heard they threw him out. Huh. Oh. And when he found him, when he found the lost sheep, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in Messiah? The man said, Lord, I believe. Don't have time for it. There's a play on words there. The word sir and the word Lord in 36 and 38. It's the same word, kyrios. And it's the context that tells us. But we see the migration in this man's faith when he goes from the respectful term for Jesus to the deity. Lord, I believe, master, uh, I, I am uh, the, it's actually a word that's used most common in terms of masters and slaves. So you remember the ownership that we talked about in, in chapter 1 of uh, uh, verse 1 of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That verse has two declarations. I declare that I am owned by God. A sheep was property. And I declare that I am content in that arrangement. So he says, Lord, I believe. Master, I believe, and he worshiped him. So then there's a, a interchange with the Pharisees, and the key to understanding all of chapter 10 is verse 41. Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin, but you claim you can see, so your guilt remains. 
You claim to be righteous. You claim to be a pastor. You, you, you all these pastors we read about that that have sexual escapades or embezzlement or uh, leadership crisis or uh, ethical breach. That's who he's talking. He's going. You guys ought to know better. What did James say about teachers? James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that your judgment is strict. Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes to the false leaders. So when he says, amen and amen, let me tell you the rest of the story. I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way as a thief and a robber. You guys are trying to crawl over the wall of truth and get to the sheep. And in shame on you. So he uses two illustrations, the gate and the shepherd. Now, sometimes the shepherd was the gate. We talked about that last week. Sometimes the shepherd would lay across the entry of the fold and nothing could get into the fold. If nothing could get out of the fold unless it went through the shepherd. And later on in John 14, Jesus would say, I am the way, the truth, the light. No one comes to the father, but through me. And that's, that's the gate uh, illustration. He does something interesting here in that he, he gives the um, the descriptions that, that it's on the on the plus side of the ledger. There's the gate and the shepherd, the good shepherd. On the negative side of the ledger, there's a thief, a robber, and later on he's going to say a hired hand. And the rest of the chapter is uh, elaboration on these uh, uh, positions. So he says the gate and the shepherd. Verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for the sheep. He, he makes a way. I am the way. Thomas said, how, how can we know where you're going unless we know the way? He says, I am the way. I go to prepare a place for you. So the shepherd is the, the next metaphor. The gatekeeper brings them in. They know his voice. His voice. The words. He is the word. So the sheep listen to him. He calls each sheep by name. More likely the shepherd would sing. Um, the Most of the, the things that I read said the shepherd sings and the sheep recognize the song and the voice of the shepherd. I can preach that all day. When, when we hear the song of the gospel, sung by the good shepherd over our sin, over our anger, over our lust, over our grief, over our addiction. When we hear the song of the shepherd, sing it over us. Not a sweeter melody. But then he compares, he says, they'll never follow a stranger. <clears throat> Now, there's an implied better do this in here. What is it? You better learn the voice of the shepherd. You better, better learn his voice. 
better, you know, how can we know what Jesus would do unless we know what he did? You better, better get to know him. They'll never follow a stranger. They'll run from him. They don't recognize his voice. And that was true. The, the shepherd looks at Psalm 23. He's emphatic about that point. If a stranger comes to visit, the sheep will run to the other side of whatever enclosure they're in. But if the, she, if the shepherd himself comes in, even there's somebody with him, there's validation there. They hear his song, they'll come running to him. What's to eat? The Pharisees didn't understand it. Verse 7, so Jesus elaborated, I am the gate for these sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. This, the, the Bill, to answer your question, there was something instinctive, and I don't know how you guys became followers of Christ. I, I, I wouldn't know if all of you are followers of Christ, but I know this. When I understood the gospel, it was as if I had been looking for something. I was only 14. But in all the angst of being a teenager, it's like this story is what I've been looking for. This person is what I've been looking for. This forgiveness is what I've been looking for. And that seems to be a common theme of all those I baptized. This is what I've been looking for. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The thief comes to kill with his false words. He's going to tell you a story. A preacher's going to tell you something that's going to make him rich, but he's not going to make you spiritually rich. Uh, a, a preacher's going to lie. A, a religious teacher is who, who should be better isn't better. He says, but I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I've come to get these sheep into safety. I don't let falsehoods come through the gate. I don't let false teaching come through the gate. I don't let wrong motives come through the gate. When I am the way, the truth, the life, they come to the Father through me because it's truth. It's, it's gospel. And then he gives one more analogy. He says, the hired hand is not the shepherd. So thieves, robbers, hired hands. One person said, a thief is one who steals by deceit. A robber is one who steals by force. A hired hand is one who steals by neglect. And he says, all three of those, we can, we can put names and faces with preachers we've heard of. They, they deceived. They stole openly or they just neglected their flock because they were trying to feather their own nest. Mm -hmm. So Jesus says, the one who abandons him exposes the sheep. Verse 14 again, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. The sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, one more thing, and I, I'm going to. Quit a little early because I want to respect that some of y'all are here for a meeting. He says, this is when he predicts the crucifixion, right? This is when he says that, that the cost of protecting the sheep is the life of the shepherd. The cost of protecting the sheep is the life of the shepherd. 
But he makes sure that we don't read this as saying, oh, we're the sheep in the pen. We don't want anybody else to come through. The good shepherd doesn't let anybody else in here. It's us. How does he make sure we don't think like that? Look at the next verse. 17. Uh, no, 16. I have other sheep. They're not of this pen. I must bring them also. This is a, a story about if anyone would come after Christ, if anyone would follow him. It's not just the Jewish people. It's not just the Gentiles who were there. It's not just us. It's not just the Baptists. It's anyone who chases after this truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. No other false teacher, no other truth, no other plan, no other scheme. But we would err if we started thinking like the Pharisees and said, this is our club, and we, we're thankful that the good shepherd doesn't let any other sheep in here. This is our flock. He says, oh, no, no, no. We're going to combine a lot of flocks under one shepherd, verse 16. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Resurrection. No one takes it from me. One of my pet peeves is when we sing songs about the blood that was spilt on the cross. Spilling is an accident. Shedding is intention. He didn't spill his blood. He shed his blood. No one takes his life but he gave it freely. I have the authority to do this. This command I received from the Father. So where does this end up? The good shepherd. He sets us on our feet again. He brings us into the fold. He, he helps us to discern the words that we hear from various teachers. He is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and he is the good shepherd. I am is uh, the Greek word ego, I may, and there are seven ego, I may, I am statements. This is the fourth of the seven. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It, the, these are the emphatic statements that he does a little bit of a play on words and the other thing that this passage does is that it equates Jesus with God. Moses said to God, what's your name? What did he tell him? I am. He, he's defined by his existence. He's defined by a verb. So when Jesus picks up that language, I am the way that I am the good shepherd. He picks up the connection that he is Messiah and Messiah is God. And only God can draw men to himself. And he does so through the good shepherd. Right? Thank you. Oh. Sunday, we will dive in just a little bit more and uh, make more sense of it, hopefully. And uh, we will see all of you then.